Welcome to episode 33 of the New Balances podcast. I'm your host, Adam, and I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, a former classmate, uh, Steve Aguino. Uh, Steve, who is also the author of the intro and outro music you hear for the podcast. Welcome to the New Balances podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you also for being a uh, flexible with the time scheduling for this thing because we had set a time of 8 30 and then we pushed it back till nine then we had to push it back a little bit further to 9 30 because there was a very uh, special show on that ran a little bit later uh, today than it usually does called below deck and i found out that you are a big fan of below deck also so i that's awesome yeah i love below deck captain sandy uh, she's, she's a goat. And then we got, of course, our OG captain, um, his name slipped in my mind now, Lee, Captain Lee, of course. Yeah. I think of his beard, you know, it reminds me of that, but, uh, his beard. on sailing out right there. It's a lot of fun. The, uh, I think, uh, Lee is my favorite just for the little quips that he has. Like, where did you think of, uh, you know, you guys are stupider, the bunch of, uh, three-legged cocks and of course he means chickens but it's like how does i I don't understand how his mind works but it's beautiful and i like it um how did you get into below deck because the way i got into it was my wife introduced me yeah i mean i got into below deck because i saw it on tv one day and uh i mean it's part of my my background because i went to suny maritime college where i studied naval architecture engineering for two years and part of my education was we had a summer sea term so I was out on a, on a training ship. It was a cargo carrier converted to a, a training vessel with 600 students and 100 crew members. So there were 700 of us spending 60 days out at sea. And so when I see below deck, it definitely uh, reminds me of those days, minus the, uh, you know, the fancy food and the beautiful uh, <laughs> yacht. But uh, yeah, there's it, a lot of uh, similarities in, on the ocean. I feel like 700 people on a confined ship must be rather tight quarters. Absolutely. I mean, in my, in my sleeping space, there, it was 126 and that was the, the largest, uh, you know, sleeping arrangement and the next size was 81 and there was 26 and then there were the regular cabins. Um, but there was, uh, you know, like three stacked high and we were like kind of sleeping on top of each other and then we'd go three deep. Uh, and so myself and a good friend of mine, David Okafor, he was six, eight, I was six, six or so I'm six, six, but, uh, we would have to sleep at the top bunk cause there was nobody above us and we were able to move our legs. Otherwise yeah. we'd be trapped inside, but, uh, yeah, it was a good experience. Oh man. Bunk beds and I do not get along. I, on my, so spoiler alert, Steve and I uh, were in the solutions together for a little while. And on my, uh, come and see weekend, uh, I was on bunk beds it was myself nick mcgrogan john Barron, and um now father paul chu so i think nick was on the top bunk of mine and uh paul was on the top bunk of uh, john Barron. but it was like mm, nope not a good idea oh my gosh i would have loved to have seen that because those are like 
three solid dudes. And then you've got Father Paul, who's just kind of like chilling, hanging out. But speaking of Chris Barron, I did see his brother John last week at Mass. So it was, it was great to catch up with the Barons. Oh, nice. Yeah. I haven't seen them in a while. I talk to John every now and again via text or uh, Twitter. Um, well, good times. So give us a little bit of your background. I know that uh, you grew up sort of a, a cradle Salesian, if you will. Uh, as a student and um, talk, walk us through a little bit the process of how you entered into formation and uh, how that road played out for you. For sure, for sure. I mean, you know, growing up, faith was always something that was a huge part of my family and a part of my life. But, you know, when you're when you're in the environment and you're growing up in it, you don't really understand the value and worth of it until it becomes more of your own and something that you're willing to more so take that step forward in your own way. Uh, but when I was in high school, I went to Salesian High School in New Rochelle, New York, born and raised in the Bronx. Um, you know, the Salesians were were awesome and their witness was really, really impactful on my life growing up as a young, you know, young guy. And uh, my brother, Mike, was uh, a Salesian for many, many years. Now he's with the Archdiocese in New York. But he went to Salesian High School. And as a young kid, I would go and visit. And the Salesians were always extremely welcoming, extremely hospitable. Like if they had something going on, they always included myself or any other, you know, young people that were coming around. So uh, when I was at the school, I was just very excited to be there. I was involved in, in a lot of different things from youth ministry to the music and uh, like they have the, the school band and jazz ensemble. And I grew up playing the saxophone. So I still play today and got involved in, in many different ways like that. Um, but, you know, sports were also a huge part of my life there at school. Um, started playing basketball uh, my freshman year. Actually, I think I think I got cut from the team my freshman year. No, I was on the team my freshman year. I got I was going to say, how do you cut a six foot freshman? Oh, easily, easily. They had the I don't you know, I'll throw the shade. I don't care. They, they played favorites. They didn't you know. They knew who they wanted and they were happy with that. I was literally the biggest kid in the school. And I would say I was pretty athletic, but you can train somebody, you know, they just didn't want to train me and it is what it is. But um, I had a, an amazing teacher. His name is Tom Callahan. He taught biology and he said, Steven, you should play volleyball. And I was like, no way. Volleyball is for girls. I'm not doing it. And uh, he got me, you know, on the court one day and he was like, I want to see what you can do. And I, I tried volleyball and I picked it up right away and I loved it and never looked back at basketball. So uh, my sophomore year, I started playing at Salesian and uh, did very, very well. Um, but what was great with the Salesians is that uh, I was really involved in youth ministry. And so one of the big turning points for me in that experience was getting an opportunity to go on the uh, October leadership retreat. My, I believe it was my junior year, my senior year, October. September, October. Yeah, my senior year as a participant. And then in March, I was a, a member of the young team for the March Leadership Retreat, MLR, OLR. Now it's the Salesian Leadership Retreat. They just call it SLR as it is. Uh, and then they also had a, a retreat in January for you other you know youth programs. But it was on the retreat that my faith really became alive for me. And you know I understood that God had a calling for me and a purpose for me. Um. And then also my junior year of high school, I was able to go to the National Catholic Youth Conference, NCYC in Atlanta, Georgia. And that was the first time that I was on a plane. That was the first, you know, of a lot of things, and especially in my faith, uh, of meeting that many young people who were, 
seeking out, you know, what is, what does this all mean? There were 18,000 of us kind of all in the same place. And it was, it was pretty cool. Um, so I definitely came back on fire with my faith and, uh, you know, I was in an environment where that was fostered and encouraged. So, you know, thank God for that. Um, but when I graduated, I was like, all right, this is, this is fun, but I'm ready for college. I'm ready to move on and, you know, to do my thing. So, I mean, I stayed involved and I was a Eucharistic minister and I, you know, was involved in youth ministry at my parish as a youth minister straight out of high school. Um, so that's pretty much my, my, my journey at Salesian high school, but, you know, kind of navigating into that Salesian life into actual formation program. Um, everything changed for me when I was 19. Uh, so I was, I did my freshman year at St. John's university in, uh, Queens, New York and Jamaica to be precise. People are like, you went to school in Jamaica? No way. That's so cool. I'm like Jamaica, Queens, take it easy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, we don't get the same, uh, same sunshine in Jamaica Queens as we do in the, uh, you yeah. know, yeah. We've got a section of Boston here called Jamaica plain. And it's <laughs> like, Oh, okay. It's like Queens, yeah. but it's also like the Caribbean. I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so I did my freshman year at St. John's. I played, uh, on the collegiate club team. I was a, a practice player for the women's D one team and the, the girls made it to the biggies finals that year. So it was awesome to be on that ride with them and to be able to, you know, be, you know, a guy jumping and swinging on the women's net, but also having that exposure of like being on a college team, but also at the same time, like really still living out my faith and trying to see where God was calling me. And I, I felt that was like a big part of my life. You know, I was going out every single weekend with my friends and then Sunday, it was time for youth ministry. And I was, you know, Steve, the youth minister on Sundays. But then every other day of the week, I was like a different Steve with my friends and going out and drinking and, you know, and hanging out and all that sort of stuff. Um, but when I was, uh, I transferred out of St. John's. My, so I did my freshman year and then I went to SUNY Maritime College in the Bronx, which was literally down the road from my house in Throgs Neck. And I was a uh, a member of the regiment of cadets. So as a student there, I had to shave my head. I wore a uniform, ended up looking like I worked for UPS. And I was like, no, trust me. It's like merchant Marine. <laughs> so um, I was there at that school and still serving as a youth minister at my parish, but, you know, I was getting ready for the summer sea term and it was going to be 60 days out at sea. And I remember I went out for lunch with my mom the day before I had to go out. And she said, Stephen, what are you going to do if you don't like it out at sea? And I was like, damn, I was like, that's a good question. Mom's always asked the hard hitting, like right to the heart of the argument, soul crushing questions, right? Like, did you remember to bring your jacket? I'm like, ah, it's cold outside. Damn it. Got- <laughs> <laughs> so my mom asked me this question and she was like, what are you going to do if you don't like it? And it immediately reminded me of something that my dad told me when I was younger. And he said, Stephen, when you, when you pray, you have to talk to God. Like he's one of your friends, like he's one of the boys. And I was very like conflicted by what he said, because, you know, what I would talk with my friends about or how I would talk with them. I didn't feel like it was deserving of being able to talk to God in that same manner. And so I remembered in that moment of what he said, like, talk to God, like he's one of your friends, one of the, one of the boys. And um, I was sitting with my mom and after she said, Stephen, what are you going to do if you don't like it? I like said a prayer in my, from my heart, like for the first time that was like authentic. Um, and I said, God, I have no idea what you want me to do with my life, but if you want to let me know, I'm listening. 
And the reason why that it was different and that it was real is because I was willing to hear the response because there were so many times that I was asking God for help and I was calling out to him and he was kind of pointing me in the direction of where he was calling me. But I, I was terrified and didn't want to go in that direction. But I finally was like, you know what? I give up. I surrender. Like, I want to hear what you got for me. And I want to take that step. And immediately in my heart, I felt the words, Stephen, you have a vocation. And it just kept repeating, Stephen, you have a vocation. And I'm sitting in a diner with her and I was like bawling my eyes out. And she's like, what the heck is going on, Stephen? What are you doing? Just and I was like, if oh. you don't like it at sea, what are you going to do? <laughs> Existential <laughs> crisis onset. Yeah, I can't swim. Uh, <laughs> no, luckily I can. But she was saying, you know, what's going on? So I said, I'll tell you in the car. And we got into the car and I was like, mom, I have a vocation. And so she started crying and she was like, I knew it. I knew it. And uh, I always joke around. I tell people like, if she knew that, I'm worried about other things she might have known that I never told her. So, <laughs> uh, so Mother's you know, intuition that, is no joke. That, that is for sure. So I, uh, you know, I felt that call and I was really, really nervous because I had to go to my academic advisor and let him know that I was going to be withdrawing from the university so that I could pursue this vocation with a religious congregation called the Salesians of Don Bosco. And I was like, you know, I'm at a public university. This guy's going to think I'm crazy because I had like a pretty decent GPA. And I was, you know, looking forward to, to doing well in the area of study that I was in. But um, the day that I went to go try to talk to him, he wasn't in his office and there was a note on the door. And it was like a, you know, a piece of paper that had like this like huge paragraph. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And it was like, uh, what the heck is it called? Like, almost like a joke, but a story. And at the very end, it was like, and this is this experience was had by a Jesuit priest. And I was like, whoa, whoa, how did, what does he know about Jesuit priests? And so what the story was, is that there are these four seniors in college who were getting ready to graduate and they chose to all skip their final to go to the beach. And so they went to the beach and they came back and they tried talking to the professor and they were like, we're so sorry. Like we had a flat tire. And he's like, oh, stop talking. Stop talking. That's, that's fine. That's fine. I'll give you your test, but I'm only going to ask you each one question, but you need to be in different areas. And so they all went to different rooms within the space. And this Jesuit priest was their professor asked the question of their final exam. What was the tire that had the problem or which tire had the problem? And that's how he caught them. And that's how he knew that they were all, you know, liars and what was going on. So when I went to go finally see him, I was like, oh, my gosh, that was a funny story. And he was like, yeah, my cousin's a Jesuit priest. And he shared this with me that somebody sent it to him. So immediately hearing him say that he his own family member was a priest, it immediately brought me peace. And I was like, look, I'm, I need to withdraw from the university so that I can pursue my vocation of, of discerning the priesthood. And he was so overjoyed. He was like. God bless you. Like, that's incredible. I'll be praying for you. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I'm experiencing this. That was process. so easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and even with my friends too, I was worried. I was like, what are they going to say? What are they going to think? And, you know, I remember uh, I was, there was like a Dr. Phil episode that was on that week. And I had like, just like flipping the channels and Dr. Phil was like, your real friends are going to support you no matter what. And that was the truth. 
they did. And I had like one guy who was like, I can't believe you're doing this. What are you doing to, to our team? I can't believe you're leaving. We're starting the season. And I was like, this is something that I, that I need to do that I'm called to do. Um, so it was incredible. Like, you know, I still have my, my very, very good friends and, uh, you know, made new friends, of course, through the Slesians and through the rest of my life. But, um, that following year, I entered the formation house in Orange, New Jersey, and, um, you know, started studying philosophy at Seton Hall University, which was a, an incredible change of pace, um, but something that I was also like very interested in doing. So that was, I'm trying to think of the time frame. I want to say it was in 20... 2010. 10? Okay. Yeah. So that's the year I was in Port Chester as a novice. And then yeah. I came back in 2011 mm-hmm. and I think you were pre-novitiate then because yep. you did a year of candidacy or did you go right into pre-novitiate? Just, just one year of candidacy. But also what was interesting with the story too, is that the following day when I left to go out on the, the, you know, the summer at sea, uh, one of the ports that we stopped at was uh, Gibraltar. And Gibraltar is right on the like border of Spain and separated by literally a strip of an airport called La Línea. And when you cross that line, it's like, okay, you're in like Gibraltar and now you're in Spain. So my friends and I, we walked literally for like eight hours and we're just going to different bars and restaurants and walking along the beach and just taking it all in. And I, I looked at this one building and it said Siliciano San Juan Bosco. And it was in the same exact font and color of my high school that I went to. And so my mind was blown and I literally start tearing up and my friends like, Steve, you all right. And I was like, you guys are not going to understand this. And so we went into the building and it was like their oratory. And I was like, when I thought of an oratory, I think of like, okay, open field with like classes. And then up above was like the dorms. And that is, it was the exact like layout of what I had in my head of what an oratory would look like. And I saw the picture of, uh, at the time, it was Father Chavez, who was the rector major. And I was just like amazed. I was like, I, I cannot believe that like Don Bosco is, you know, leading me even in, in Spain, you know, you, through you immediately felt at home in your heart. Like you're in a foreign land as, and you walk through the front door and you're at home. You know, and I know you and your family, you guys are fluent in Spanish, so I'm sure you could have struck up a conversation with them there. No problem. Did you talk to any of the priests there or anything? I'm not fluent, but I can definitely order a sandwich and, you know, get by for sure. Um, My my bad on the assumption. No, no, no. It's all good. Um, You know, I can definitely ask where's the library Uh, (laughs) because those are like the two. Yo, Tom Bien. Yeah, very good. Very good. Uh, Muy bien, muy bien. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it was incredible. There was nobody there. Literally, there was not a single person in the entire place, but all the doors were unlocked and I was able to just walk right in kind of like a security problem, but you know, it was, yeah, I I think it was more of a, like a Holy spirit moment of like, Hey, like you are, you're on the right path. Yeah. So uh, it was super cool, but yeah, two th- that was the summer of 2009, and then 2010, um, I entered the uh, the formation program. So, yeah. So you enter into Orange in 2010, and your world changes, having going to studying naval architecture and engineering to studying philosophy. Kind of a big change. Um, a little bit. 
you know, talking about Plato coming out of the cave and all that stuff and Mm -hmm. going straight into the history of the province and the Salesians at large. Uh, You were there for seven years because you left the same, you and I, same day, I think. That's right. Yeah. our June vows expired. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you get released from your vows early or did you? No, no but I was, able, I was able to, to like leave and just kind of finish out the summer, um, like on my own, but my vows did expired at the, you know, standard time, August 16th, I believe. Yeah. I think on the 17th was when I started getting on dating profiles on social media and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> That's where I met my wife, but we're getting too far ahead of ourselves here. Mm. Uh, so when you were in Orange and in your formation uh, process, what would you say were some of your more favorite or bet- better memories of being in formation? Yeah, honestly, like my favorite memory of being in formation was the sheer aspect of camaraderie and brotherhood that I had with the guys in the house and the community. And then like we weren't uh, in my my initial year of formation, like we weren't in the same community. However, there were times where you, where you guys came over as pre-novices to join us for recreation, or we had province days, we had opportunities to like all hang out together. And it really was like a, you know, a religious frat house. And we would, you know, play games and prank each other and just have a, a good time. And that was like my favorite thing of like, we could all do this, but at the same time, we were all like young men who were trying to discern our, our journey, our vocations, um, and, you know, see where God was calling us. So that was really cool. And, and community prayer for me was, was very, you know, really important and something that I needed to, to help develop that, that prayer life and, uh, you know, the practice of making it, you know, an, an everyday thing, not that it wasn't before, but certainly not in the, like the same regard as, uh, you know, the discipline of that daily prayer and community. Yeah, that was for me definitely was the camaraderie and community prayer where the the thing that sort of fulfilled me to a certain extent, uh, being able to have those opportunities to uh, share. I remember, you know, once a month we would do Lexio Divina or was it once a month or once every other week or something. Yeah. And you'd meet in small groups and uh, those sorts of things were good. When I was first there, it was the entire house in one room doing Lexio Divina. And I was like, uh, this is not sustainable with 30 people. You can't yeah, go around yeah. the room and everyone think of a word or phrase mm-hmm. that struck them. So like that was how many of you agree? Let's all raise a hand. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that was it was super cool too. I mean, there were eight of us, my my first year of candidacy coming in. So there were eight candidates, and I feel like that was that's a huge class. And I still haven't seen a class come in that that size. Um I mean, there's definitely, I think there's like one from that class now, which I mean, it is what it is. That's a part of discernment. But initially it was, uh, the only one that's left is brother Raphael, who is now a formator in orange as a cogitor brother, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's phenomenal to have a younger guy, uh, in the formation process, uh, because first of all, he's closer to that generation than some of the older guys. Mm -hmm. And if you actually read the ratio documents and everything else, you know, it says pay attention to the younger Salesians. They are 
closer to the up and coming generation and they can relate to them better. So listen to them. There's wisdom. I mean, oh. who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, Terry. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, th- I think that's awesome that he's there. Uh, he's a solid guy and mm-hmm. just an all-around good dude. Um, sure. My my first year, ten guys entered, but in my particular class, there were five. So mm-hmm. some went to pre-novitiate, some went to uh, came in as second-year candidates, and I went in as a first-year candidate. Uh, so it was. Uh, Interesting. And I started out going to community college because I didn't really have any college experience. I didn't have uh, enough credits to go right into Seton Hall because I never took the SATs or any of the other things. I came in from a background of being a crappy high school student. And I was like, oh, okay. I think God wants me to do something and just sort of go along with the flow. And you know, I had my uh, come to Jesus moment when my grandmother was on her uh, deathbed in hospice care and I witnessed her receiving the anointing of the sick, sort of opened my eyes to a personal faith life. I saw a personal encounter that she had with Jesus and it ended up being sort of my conversion moment. Uh, and then I filled out what I, when we had to retell our vocation stories. Uh, it became like uh, the e-harmony for religious vocations. I went to uh, some vocation website and filled out a survey and they said, you match with the Salesians. And then Franco <laughs> Pinto essentially called me immediately. and was like, hey, how you mm. doing? Yeah. Uh, what a guy. He's good. He's down in Tampa, I think. Okay. Then, Very nice. Uh, so I was there. I entered in... 2007 and then you know stuck it out and one of the things that I remember telling myself when I entered was that I was not going to leave until they told me this is not for you Mm -hmm. but in the back of my head and in my heart of hearts I knew that I wanted my own family so Mm -hmm. I was like constantly fighting with myself do you belong here is this what you're supposed to be doing uh and then I remember talking to uh father John Serio And I said, the one thing I don't want to become is a miserable priest. I do not want to be a miserable son of a bitch. That's right. And my last couple of years, I found myself becoming the miserable son of a bitch. And I said, "Mm, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's so true. And I I think that that's such an important thing, especially in that the area that we were in of discerning vocation, I feel like there's definitely people in the past and not only in our con- the Salesian congregation, but in, even in diocesan or other congregations that men and women might be like, you know what? I've been in here for eight years. I've done so much time. So, you know, what? I'm just going to stick it out and it, it, that's it. And I don't care. And they become miserable and they make community life miserable and they don't inspire or encourage vocations. And they kind of just, you know, do the bare minimum and get by and then they call it a day. Um, you know, but what kind of life is that? And I think that it's a blessing that, you know, you were able to, to realize that and say like, all right, God, like definitely this is, this is, I've done my time. So there's more, you want more for me. And, you know, I felt that same aspect of, you know, that sense of like, what is that more that God is calling me to? Uh, But for me, it was ultimately two things. It was, I want to know that I'm loved genuinely 
and I want to be happy. And I know that happiness and joy are two different things, but it's like, I want it. I want that feeling of happiness. And I do, I, I do have joy as well. Um, but in ultimately too, asking questions like God, like, where do you want, how am I going to be happy serving you? Or where do you want me to serve you and be happy while doing it? Because I can serve God and be miserable. Or I can serve, you know, like, Oh, I'm willing to sacrifice. Like, yeah, we're all called for that, but also we're called to be joyful in, in what we're doing too. And every time I would think about that, or I would talk with someone in spiritual direction or have a uh, Randy Kanto, that monthly meeting with the director, that was the one thing that I always say is like, I want to know that I'm loved. And it's like, well, constitution 50 tells us that we have brothers to love and we all love each other. And we take it. I'm like, no, that's BS. Like, I don't want a sheet of paper to remind me or tell me that I'm supposed to care for somebody. Right. Like I'm being judged uh, four times a year by, well, excuse me, three times a year by a peer evaluation and once a year by a self-evaluation where everybody's, you know, filling out their tattletale slips on each other <laughs> and turning it into the director. And, you know, I would always essentially turn in blank documents because I would say, I'm not here to rat anybody out and I'm not here to, you know, I'm also a sinner. So I'm not going to say, well, I saw this guy sneaking uh, beers up into his room or this guy taking ice cream or this guy, this guy, this guy. Uh, No, not at all. (laughs) I had whiskey in my room. (laughs) It is what it is, is, man. (laughs) No, but one of the, one of the funny things too, is that I remember specifically like in Novitiate, you know, I was, I was very, very close with the guys. And so when we had our evaluations, we would talk to each other and say like, Hey, this is what I see. This is what I'm going to write down here. And we would have conversations. And then when, you know, our director would be like, all right, here's what they said. And I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's what that person said. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. That's what that person said. Like, well, you're not allowed to know that. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to grow? Like, if you have it, if you have an issue with me, or if you have something that you see that you think is vital for me to know, to help me grow in my walk and in my journey and my vocation, why would I not be able to approach that individual as a man of faith, as a brother walking in this vocation and say, you are doing this, what's up? And then have a conversation with people. But we, we teach people to be freaking like, hide behind your computer, hide behind your, your pen and your pencil. And it's not helpful. No, nor healthy. You know, no. it does not prepare them a for the professional world, because even after you get out of the formation house, you have to exist in a professional environment in one way or the other, whether you're a priest or brother in a professional field, you know, there's certain sets of decorum that you have and ethics that you have to follow. So it really wasn't, I felt the, the best way to go about fulfilling that one story. I remember from, uh, it was, I think I was a pre-novice, I was with uh, somebody who, who you know. Um, I'm not going to say the name on sure. here, but yeah. uh, I'll text you the name so you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, gosh. But we were at Mary Help of Christians in Tampa, and mm. he, I went to Ybor City, and I bought like six or seven cigars or something. And I brought them back and I would walk around the grounds in the evening, uh, praying a rosary and smoking a stogie. That was 
my MO. Like it was mm-hmm. very relaxing for me. And then uh, it, I, one of the guys that I ran into who I sent you the name of, uh, he said, you know, we're not supposed to be smoking. And I said, where, well, well, why not? He goes, well, it's in the constitutions. And I looked at him and I said, have I studied the constitutions? Do I know what's in the rules? No, I don't. So it ended up in my evaluation and the director of the community at that time was Father Dennis Donovan. Uh. And he, he said, so this is on your evaluation. I said, well, to be fair, Father, I said, I haven't studied the constitutions. I don't know the rules. He goes, that's a great point. And he just crossed it out. And mm-hmm. it was like out the door. I was like, okay, at least the guy talked to me about it. But at the same time, I'm like, come on, don't, don't tattle on me. It, right, it's right, not right. a sinful thing. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, yeah. if I was, you know, getting high or obliterated drunk and uh, impairing judgment, then yeah, tattle on me. But right. Any event. For sure. Where were we? Yeah. Community prayer and camaraderie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those, those are the great things. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was able to do while I was at Seton Hall was um, I had a Spanish class as we all had to take you know, our regular university courses and in class was this girl, her name was Morgan and she was on the women's volleyball team. And she, in her introduction was like, yeah, I play volleyball. And then, so I introduced myself and I said, I play volleyball as well. And she was like, Oh, you should come to one of our practices. And I went to the practice and like got to ball out with the girls. And then that was the start of me helping out with the women's D one volleyball team. Um, and then when I came back in my post of I actually was a volunteer assistant coach for the women's team. And it was a really awesome opportunity and experience. And then I was also able to help rebuild the men's um, collegiate club program. So I got to coach and play on uh, the Seton Hall men's uh, volleyball team. That's dope. I knew that you were involved somehow, but I didn't know like what you were doing uh, with them. Cause I think at that time I was down in Louisiana uh, yeah. for my practical training. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I like got to, you know, register with NCAA clearinghouse and did the whole thing. And I would go to meetings and I would be at their practices in the mornings, you know, and it didn't conflict with, with community life, which was awesome. Um, But what was, what was really cool is that the first tournament that we ever played in for school, we won. Um, And so, you know, you play against other colleges and whatnot. And so I think we were playing at like Rowan university and, uh, you know, we won like 500 bucks and we brought it back to Seton Hall and the athletic director initially gave us a hard time because the other, you know, it, it helped that a seminarian and a, who was a brother studying for the priesthood was like, you know, the coach and running everything. So they felt it was like, you know, more stable. And when they found out that we were good and that we were winning money, they like, were like, what do you need? We'll support you. And they were like giving us jerseys and warmups and this and that. So it was pretty cool that that happened. And uh, they're still like going strong today. And now they're able to host their own tournaments. Uh, Brother Kevin White, who's awesome guy. And right now he's in. Uh, Love him. He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So he plays volleyball. He's a great player. And he, you know, plays on the, uh, on the team as well. And I think he helps out with the Seton Hall women when he gets a chance, but it's cool that the Salesians are still able to have that impact at Seton Hall and that, that uh, space of volleyball. You were a trailblazer, man. You set, yeah. you set a, a path. Yeah. Um, so in talking in some of the positive, what do you think were some of the, the negatives or detractors that uh, 
you know, obviously we've all had to deal with our fair share of negativity and encountering things uh, in the communal life. And as with anything, there's a, a balance to it. Um, ah. Ah, play on the words of the podcast title (laughs) yeah i mean the one thing that i was able to very quickly pinpoint while i was in formation of something that was frustrating is that you know every single year for the most part you you begin the year and you finish the year there's a wrap-up there's an evaluation and then you are planted in a new place And they want the guys who are young to get these experiences of being formed in different areas to work with different communities, with different cultures and that sort of stuff. And I understand that. However, the challenge that I saw and that that I witnessed was that every class, every formation class was a unique puzzle of thousands of pieces. And each year, the puzzle would try to be put in place together by the formators of whoever it might have been. And the puzzle is never complete, but at the end of the year, rather than preserving the puzzle and sharing that and passing along to the next place where they were going, it was broken up again, thrown in the box, shaken up. Maybe you're missing a couple pieces and handed off and said, here, you, you work with them now. And so that was a very, very challenging aspect because, you know, there were places where community was great. There were places where community was not so great. Um, But what was interesting is that there was a a big emphasis on we were responsible for our own formation. So if guys didn't really have a plan of life or didn't really have, um, you know, a direction of where they were going, they were kind of just like sitting ducks and floating along and waiting to see what was going to happen or which way the wind was going to blow. And I definitely felt like that. And I know that if it wasn't for, volleyball and if it wasn't for music and my you know the way that I was involved with Array of Hope Ministries specifically um you know I don't know where my vocation would have led or would have taken me certainly like I'm I'm grateful uh, abundantly grateful to God that you know my my story played out the way that it did um but that was just one of the really you know challenging things of uh you know of, of community life in that regard and um you know it, it's tough to of like wanting to be like nice and like, Oh, we're Catholic. We care for each other. But at the same time, you know, like people need to get punched in the mouth, you know, you, gotta, like- <laughs> <laughs> you know, just high five someone in the face with a chair every once in a while. <laughs> uh, the old school WWE. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I mean, that, that for me was, you know, one of the big challenges, but ultimately you know, my, my vocation and the way that I, that I love to pray. And I felt, you know, the Holy spirit moving was through music. And, uh, my first year in the house, I met father, now father, Steve DeMeo, who was just, you know, Steve back in the day. And we went on, uh, an Emmaus walk together throughout the, the beautiful community of orange, New Jersey, walking down McChesney street. And, uh, we were just talking about life and music and that sort of stuff. And finally we had a lot of similarities. So, we were able to kind of just start making music as just something for fun. And then it ended up becoming like something like way, way, way bigger than us and way more serious. So um, that was like, that really sustained my vocation of being able to make music with, with Steve and being to perform and being able to perform and travel and speak at, you know, high schools and youth rallies and youth groups. And it was, it was an incredible experience. It's something that not, 
that's certainly unique to a formation experience. Cause like not, I don't think anybody comes into religious life thinking like, Oh, let's be uh rappers and make an album and travel and all that sort of stuff. So we were the Bosco boys and producing music as the Bosco beats. And it was actually like a pretty incredible experience. Um, but also what was challenging was like those people who were like, Oh, relax, you know, like your, your information still don't let this, you know, get ahead of yourself. And I feel like in certain regards, if like we would have had more support or if it would, we were able to expand in certain ways, um, you know, it could have been maybe inspired some more vocations or could have, and I, I don't know how, how it could have went, but I, I know for a fact that there was a, a wall that was Hard placed. Wall. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. You guys are, you guys are good with this. Like we could, we'll, we were on a leash and it was like one of those uh, leashes with, you know, retractable thinking you can run as far as you want. And then the, the you know, who's harvest holding is it hits it. And then oh, <laughs> you're like, Oh my gosh, I, uh, I just snapped my neck. Yeah. 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 So that, there that was, was definitely there. It was a solution uh, I lived with during my divitiate because uh, we were, we came in as like, you know, rather on fire. We wanted to just be the best novices that we possibly could be. And he goes, listen, be proud, not loud. Don't mm-hmm. try to shake things up. Don't try to, uh, you know, be bigger than you are. You're not professed. You're not anything. Just, just do what you're told. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. So that sets the tenor for what you're expecting from us. Yeah. You're, you know, a priest who's in charge of things. And, you know, you're not in charge of me, but you're telling right. me to calm down. It was just like, it was, you know, the sour note and that I, I sort of picked up on was all of these individual people who were negative or had negative outlooks or, you know, had sort of cancerous tendencies and how they infiltrate into uh, community life. And you can just pick up on it, but they're really the only voices that speak out in meetings and sort of the drive the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I remember my, my first time and, you know, when you, I feel like when you get, you feel called by God to, enter in a certain state of life or to pursue a vocation, you're like, wow, this is it. This is everything, but it could change. You could be called to do this one thing. And then you serve your purpose in that. And then God's like, okay, now I have something else ready for you and planned for you. And so I remember the first time I ever felt like, uh, like maybe this wasn't for me was my pre-novitiate year. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is only like my second year in, like what's going on. And I was so distressed and so like, almost like heartbroken. Cause like, but God, like you, you called me here and I, I feel this and blah, blah, blah. And ultimately it was like, okay, it was, could be a test of like, is this, re- is this for real? Cause if I mean, it could have been like, Oh, I feel this. Okay. I'm gone. Um, but I think that it's good to have those challenges to say, if, if this is serious, you'll work through it, you'll get through it, or you'll see where, where the silver lining is and how to operate and navigate on the choppy waters. Or are you just going to say abandon ship time to go, you know, on, you know, instead of this Island, I'm going to the next Island. And, um, you know, I, I think that's where I was at. And as I was discerning out, one of the, the big keys for that was my, my happiness and my joy in, in community life and where God was calling me to serve and to be happy serving him. And I had my conversation with the, uh, the top dog 
on my my last days and you when you have the conversation there they speak and then at the very end you can ask your questions and so the question that i asked was what do you think of the music that we do or that i do specifically and he said it's nice but it's not really necessary and i was like oh crap like i was very very surprised and the dog uh, wall is down okay yeah and so hearing that was just like the confirmation that I needed of like, this is not the place for you because there are people who support this and know that this is like a very real thing. Um, and so I, you know, left the Slesians and started working with the Ray of Hope full time, but I started working with them in 2014. So from 2014 to about 2018, um, I was, you know, doing events with the Ray of Hope and it's through a Ray of Hope that I met my wife. She was, you know, a, a speaker and a musician um, and so we were very friendly and had a great, you know, friendship and great rapport. And I, I would see it as like a spiritual friendship. We were always aware of like the needs that we needed to pray for, for one another. And we'll talk about our families, like, oh, it's, you know, this is going on with my cousin, like, please pray for them and vice versa. So, um, it was, it was pretty cool to have that sort of, uh, friendship and, and developing it out. But, um, you know, as I felt that I was discerning out, I was like, all right, God, like maybe, and it always, always, always in the back of my heart, I was like, in the back of my mind, it's like, if this is not for me, I definitely know that I want to be married. I want to be a father. And so my prayer would always be, if this vocation doesn't work out, God, like, please let there be a woman who's gorgeous and who is, you know, prayerful and who's Catholic and who loves you and it would love me, but also would love you more than she loves me and would help me to live my faith and I can help her to live hers. And so, um, you know, when I knew that I was discerning out and we had just broken up with, uh, with a boyfriend. And so I was like, all right, God, I see what you're doing here. And when I entered formation, I started journaling a lot, like every day. And I thought it was like the lamest thing, but Pedro Silva, um, was a huge, you know, motivator for me to journal. I was like, bro, just journal, like, trust me. And, uh, I, I did it literally for like five years straight journaling. So I love the aspect of journaling. Um, I had been doing it up until my first year of post-novitiate. Uh, and then I stopped because I don't know if you remember, we had a uh, post-novice from California. Uh, he went AWOL mm. and, um, for like 36 hours. I and, remember that. Uh, we... There was another guy, uh, the director had asked us to like go through his room to see if there was anything that we could find that would give us an indicator on to where he might be. And the first place that the guy went to was uh, the brother's journal to like rummage through and I'm like, whoa, 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 that that's like sacred. Don't don't go through that. He's like, no, maybe it'll give us an answer and just started going through it. And from mm -hmm. that day forward, I never journaled again. Dang. Like this this is well, sacred. This is not okay. Well, funny that you say that because so I kept my journals regular. And so in our like chairs that we have in the chapel, we have like the little side, you know, side uh, holder. So I would keep my journal in there and uh, you would have, you know, your little marking and whatnot. And when I was in another community outside of Orange, um, I noticed that it was in a completely different spot. My book was flipped and turned around in different ways. And I was like, okay, somebody was going through my 
freaking stuff and reading it. And luckily I never put anything in there that was like incriminating or anything, but just literally like my, my faith walk and where I was at in my day. And so my next like entry for like the next like week was literally like whoever the piece of crap is reading my journal, I'd appreciate it. Like if you stopped and I would leave it out in public and just like put it on my chair. So whoever reads it and walks past it sees like, okay, oh crap, he got me, he got me, but he knows, he knows. Yeah. Yeah. But I kept a separate journal for Emily that I kept in my room and it was, it was entries of everything that I would want to tell her and things that, you know, how I felt about her and the feelings that I was starting to develop. And I would literally just write like what I would say to her. And I read like, Hey, Emily, like you were beautiful today. Your voice was amazing. Can't wait to see you again. And like, that was it. But, um, I remember but it was, you kind of knew when you were leaving that she was the one you were going to. Oh yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. So just for where I was at when you know, like my mind frame, when I was leaving was all right, I'm not going to talk to anybody who I know or who knew me as brother Adam, because I feel like that would be weird for me, but mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's got a different mindset and, uh, you know, for me, that was just like, a, you know, no way. Yeah. There was one girl that I met down in Louisiana who, you know, was flirting with me at a, a young adult uh, thing. She was uh, a teacher uh, somewhere in New Orleans and we met at adoration at the seminary and, you know, there was a connection and she, I was down there with John Langan at the time and she was like, oh, I'm going to go to this bar after adoration. You should come with me. And I was like, mm, this is going to be dangerous. Like <laughs> this has got, this has got bad news bears written all over it. And oh, yeah. like, I went back home uh, to the community and was kneeling in the chapel praying before I went to bed and she called my cell phone and I'm like, Hey, and she's like, Hey, I was like, so I said, just, I want to make sure we're on the same page. I think there's a mutual attraction here. She said, yeah, I go, okay. I said, I, I would love to be with you, but I'm in a situation now where that's not possible. And I, if we're ever to have a social interaction, I said it needs to be in a group setting, like, because I can't be by myself with you. And then after I left, like two months later, I found myself in New Orleans for a wedding and I reached out to her and she's like, no, 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 I'm not going to date you. And I was like, but what yeah. <laughs> like i thought there was something there she goes no i was attracted to the idea of you because you were unattainable and i was like yeah and it's crazy that that's that's a real thing and i remember that's hearing that for the first time like when i was at seton hall they were like watch out for the chalice chippers and chalice chasers and i was like what the heck is that and they're like Girls will go after guys who are seminarians just for the, the sheer fact that they are like unattainable or that they can't do certain things. So uh, I always thought that was very interesting because I had like a great like stiff arm, like friend zone, like, hi, how are you? Or just like completely ignore people. So it was great. But I, I can definitely understand where you're coming from of like keeping that separation of like, OK, people who knew me. Yeah, And that was just a boundary that I created. For, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, when I was leaving Father John Serio, um, you know, I shared with him, I was like, oh, I'd love to still like stay at Salesian and like help out or teach in certain regards. And he was like, that'd be nice. But like, you'd have to wait 
until these freshmen graduate. Because if these kids know you as like Mr. Aguino, when you're a brother, it's going to be going to be super confusing. And, and I was like, all right, I can understand that. And that was fine. Um, but what the cool part about my formation experience was that I was me the whole time through and through. Like I didn't put on any front of a like thousand percent. I'm a brother now. I was like, what's up? I'm brother Steve. Like, this is me. So I, I'm still Steve. I happen to be a brother. So like, that's, what's up. Um, I also answered to, Hey, you like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yo, you with the mustache. That's me now. Uh, not that. My wife uh, tells me I'm not allowed to just have a mustache. So like for a good reason. I mean, yeah. Definitely. It's it's so working. The goatee's working. I appreciate um, that. Thank you. Yeah. So I mean, when uh when I was on my way out, I just I would journal every day about what I would want to tell her. And then uh, you know, once I left, we started dating and you know, everything became official, like when my vows expired. But I knew in my heart like I was at peace when when I was with her, when I was thinking about her, like through prayers, I, I knew that she was the one for me and, you know, the feeling was mutual. Thank God. So, um, we dated for nine months and then at the end of those nine months, I asked her to marry me and she said, yes. But what was cool is that I got to read her an entry that I had in my journal that while I was still in formation, I wrote down, it was like the Holy spirit was definitely, you know, moving my hand that day because I wrote down exactly what I would want to tell her if I were to propose to her. So that day that I was with her, I had my journal with me and I got to read her that exact entry. And uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. It it literally felt like a movie. And so I had my book and like threw it to the side and then got down on one knee. Um, Yeah. And the rest is history. So we got a baby now coming in April and uh, it's pretty spoiler alert, pretty crazy journey. Yeah. I mean, not so spoiler because yeah. But, you know, that's awesome. Um, I'd be remiss to tell you that it is the, it is both the biggest blessing, but it's also the most scariest thing that I've uh, undertaken. Um, You know, the birth of my daughter has changed my outlook on life. Um, It changes the priorities that you have. It changes uh just like everything you live for that child's smile uh day after day like i'll come home from work and she'll be uh my wife and i say that she's telling stories because it'll just start like screeching and doing all this other stuff and it just melts my heart and brings me to tears you know three months old and already wrapped around her finger oh ridiculous Oh yeah. No, I, I had my, uh, my OS moment, the OSHIP moment on, uh, this past Saturday when we had our the baby shower and we walked into the room and, you know, it was a surprise for Emily. So everybody's like, surprise. And I just see this like mound of, you know, generosity and the, the people that are there and the gifts that they're giving. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like these are all coming home with us. This is for our baby. And, when my sister had her kids, my mom made this like little clothesline that she would hang. And it was all like the little outfits and clothes that they had for the baby. And so my mom did it again, but it was, it's for my baby. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is real. It's happening. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah. It, it was such an incredible uh, experience. 
the podcast episode that uh, I had pre-recorded and put up because I released these on Fridays and my daughter was born on a Friday. So I scheduled it. But like the opening sequence is like Michael Scott, like, oh, my God, it's happening. Everyone be calm, be calm. (laughs) What a what a great show. What a great show. I love The Office. Yeah. But, you know, fatherhood definitely is going to suit you and suit Emily. uh, Well, motherhood, but uh, (laughs) parenthood at large is, you know, it's phenomenal. Absolutely. I can't wait for you to join uh, the club of, I'm not sure, is it public knowledge uh, what the sex of the baby is? Absolutely. So team team girl dad is awesome. That's right. Um, You know, one of the part-time jobs I have is dealing with uh, drunk 20-year-olds in uh, athletic uh, leagues here in Boston. I officiate uh, softball and uh, co-ed flag football and like bro code runs strong with some of these people and like just the way that they talk i'm like hey don't don't be a douche you know like you know girl dad over bro code any day of the week it just you know someday it's going to be my daughter out there and i will take your head off your shoulders (laughs) i know i know and you know what was funny too is that when i found out that we were having a girl i remember watching like we were watching a movie on tv and like the plot the premise of the movie that somebody was going after this girl and trying to kill her and i was like i don't like this i don't like the fact that somebody's trying to kill somebody's daughter right now this is not a good thing and just like the just that little piece alone i was like wow so much is going to change so much has changed yes yes yeah it is a wild ride well so what other uh projects are you working on currently uh, to let the people know where to find you on social media and find your wonderful music. Oh, well, thank you very much. I mean, the music has kind of like pressed pause, uh, you know, in full transparency, the, the uh, contract that we had expired with the, our label. So they pulled all of our music from Spotify, but if you go on YouTube, you could still try to find some of the stuff. Um, you know, you can check me out at the Bosco beats, T H E B O S C. O B O S C O B E A T S, not like the chocolate syrup and or the vegetable, um, but the saint and the music. And then um, I do a lot of content creation, so videos and pictures and photography at agino.media. Um, and so right now I'm teaching full time at Don Bosco Prep in Rams, New Jersey. I'm their media specialist for the school and teaching uh, TV and film, multimedia, digital design. Uh, and all that and running their media club. So we live stream all of our, uh, you know, morning news broadcasts, school masses, football games. We have students who are commentators. So we have a lot of stuff going on at DB. Uh, let me, let me make sure I get this one, right. Cause I DBP com arts. So DBP C O M arts, A R T S. Uh, so you can see some of the cool stuff that I'm doing with my students. And I will of course link all of these things in the description and, uh, you know, this episode will go live on Friday when my wife and I are in Kentucky. So it'll be our second anniversary and she wants to travel and I enjoy bourbon. So we're going to go to Kentucky and do some of the bourbon trail. Nice. Uh, very nice. And then, uh, yeah, looking forward to that. And uh, I was going through my pictures of why I'm not allowed to have a mustache. <laughs> 
You look it's... like an old Irish bare knuckle boxer. I will fight a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> one of the Bravo oh, shows. So I use bitch very lightly. Um, one of the shows that my wife and I watched during the pandemic because there was nothing else to do during the quarantine was uh, the Shahs of Sunset on oh, Bravo. Yeah. Yep. And uh, Reza, uh, mm. one of the characters on it, would say, this bitch, this bitch, that bitch. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, we talk about, um, you know, people who park outside. We don't have a driveway. We have just on-street parking where we're at. It's like, mm. this bitch is in my parking spot. Or, you know, <laughs> if the dog does something stupid, we refer to yep. him as this bitch. It's just that's it was a way to try to pass pass the time. <laughs> it, it definitely works because that's that's a funny thing. But something I just remembered that is going to be very interesting for uh, your audience is the fact that you and I have a permanent mark that is identical. Because when we were on retreat one summer, I was bored and I was drawing in my notebook. Uh, no, that's not the one. Wait, on, yes. Yeah. So we've got this tattoo of an anchor and the miraculous metal, um, both on our left shoulder. Or is that, that's your left shoulder or your right shoulder? Yeah. It's my left shoulder. Yeah. So I got mine on my left shoulder as well. Um, but we were, you were sitting next to me and you're like, that's pretty cool. Can I get that tattooed? And I was like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> and then I saw it. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get it tattooed too. And then I got it tattooed at my place. Uh, place in the Bronx. But the following day I was at a bachelor party for a friend of mine. I got thrown in a pool. So that chlorine messed it up, but, uh, oh, yeah. how bad did it get messed up? No, I mean, it, it looks okay. It looks okay, but it could definitely use a retouch, but, uh, now I'm working on my leg, getting my leg done. Yeah. My, so with that tattoo, I got it done while we were on retreat. Cause I was leaving for Jerusalem. So okay. I got that done. Uh, and then I got, the other one done like right before the retreat uh, down in Florida when I was visiting mm -hmm. my parents. And I remember, uh, you know, Eddie, uh, now Father Eddie, was like, what's that? And I was like, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to worry about stuff. And well, I got the other one done. And uh, I was like, I used money that my family had given me. And I didn't exactly declare it to the community because I was figuring I'm going to be in Jerusalem. They're not going to know anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll come back and it'll be too late. I'm like, oh, no, I, I always had that because I never took my shirt off in front of anybody. It's, mm. you know, not that appealing for the prying eyes. <laughs> uh, but I was like, yeah, so I got this one done in the Palisades Mall. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's very true. Um, I got my first tattoo done like two weeks before I had to go into the novitiate because I was worried and they were like, can't have tattoos. And I didn't know what they were going to say, especially like being in school. Like I was like trying to get like sleeves to cover it just in case like it was a problem. But I literally, I have a fetus at familia on my, my inner bicep, but it's from like my armpit down to my elbow. It's like the whole thing. And, uh, it was, it was pretty funny because 10 years later, yeah. Uh, I went back to the same spot to get some, to, some more tattoos. And I said to the guy, I was like, I was here 10 years ago as for my first tattoo. And I was a seminarian, but I'm like, you know, I explained my story and he's like, Oh my gosh, I remember you. I can't believe it. So it was, it was pretty cool to be back. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have plans for this. My wife and I got, uh, this tattoo. Love of my heart. Right? Love of my heart. Yeah. Nice. You know, Gaelic. 
Who doesn't? I'm, no, I'm kidding. I, 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 I literally I googled it. Oh, okay. Uh, so we got <laughs> we got uh, this in Dublin, and my idea is to put some sort of vine around it with mm. our wedding date in Roman numerals. That's cool. And then have the vine come around up here and put my daughter's name on it. And then mm. if we have more kids, add to the vine. So like that'll be my sleeve on that. That's cool. Yeah. My, my wife and I, we have, uh, so I have mine here. It says always, always. So like a L W I mean, wow. Yeah. A L W A Y S comma. And then a L L W A Y S. And then she has hers here. So whenever we would like sign letters or cards to each other, we would write love always, always, and then put our name at the end. So that was something nice. That's cute. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. So, all right, brother, I'll talk to you uh, the next time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on here. Peace. All right, peace.